Well, let's just ask the Lord for uh, his blessing upon our time around his word, shall we? Well, we come to a subject today which um, probably doesn't get often preached about in church these days. It's often seen as um, perhaps a little bit too much of a touchy subject to speak about. And yet we know that when it comes to your word that, uh, that it's important that we um, understand the whole counsel of God. And so we want to pray for your blessing to be upon our time now around your word together. Particularly we want to ask Lord for uh, your help this morning as uh, I preach this message that your Holy Spirit will not only enable myself but will also enable all of us to understand what it is you have to say to us this morning that your Holy Spirit will take the words of my mouth and Lord give them power that Lord it points us to you and to your glory and Lord to the truth Help us, Lord, this time that we have around your word together this morning to have our hearts opened. Lord, we ask that uh, if any have uh, scales over their eyes that prevent them from seeing, hardness of heart that prevent them from hearing, and pray, Lord, that you remove those things right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we come to a subject this morning which, uh, to be honest with you, should be incredibly confronting. It's a subject I think that uh, many people really don't like to talk about today, and let alone, uh, you know, sort of, th- sorry, shouldn't let alone uh, think about it or talk about it. But I doubt because, you know, when it comes to this whole subject of hell, it's not really what you'd call dinner conversation, is it? <laughs> Really comes up in uh, you know talks around the dinner table, or for that matter, talks at you know your local uh, a local chat over the uh, the table at the local coffee shop, or things like that. I mean, even in the place that you would most likely hear this subject uh, you know raised, and that is in church. That even today we find many professing Christians who have sought to either downplay it, to deride it, or to scorn it, if you like, to to doctor it, that is to uh, to change it. And to manufacture it into their own kind of understanding, their own kind of you know nice kind of uh, uh, um, um, pre- presentation of it, or just plain deny it. When we speak about hell. I'm sure all kinds of uh, images might come to mind. I mean, you know, the, the, these days with the media and you know movies and things like that, probably one of the most you know uh, popular or common sort of um, things that come to mind when it speaks about the devil is is this little red person with the, you know the horns and the long pointy tail and the and the pitchfork. I mean, that's the kind of um, image that uh, the people today in our world have of the devil. They kind of see him as the one who is uh, the person who's kind of like the one who's in control of of hell, if you like, or the one who you know kind of like dishes out the punishment in hell and that sort of thing who uh, if you know the Roman uh, the Rowan Atkinson skit on hell if some of you might have seen that before you know the one who who stands with the books there and and says you know for the different people to go to these different parts of hell and things like that 
Of course, other images sort of see hell as uh, this place which is where there's lots of fire. It's a very, very hot place. In fact, many would say it's a very, very unpleasant place and they certainly wouldn't want to go there. But the view that's becoming more and more popular today and more and more common today is the fact that hell doesn't even exist. It's not even a place. That we don't have to worry about it because it's just a bunch of religious nonsense. But is that really the case? I mean, is hell a real place? And if so, what's it like? And what's its purpose? Is it a place just for really bad people? Well, that's our task this morning, to, uh, to look at God's word together and to see what God's word actually has to say about hell. Because there's a lot of, of, of misunderstandings and a lot of representations out there which are completely unbiblical, which completely are, uh, are, are not according to what the word of God says. And of course, God has made it clean, clear to us and plain to us that hell is indeed reserved for people at the end of time where they at a place where they will go to be away from the presence of God. And we're going to come to that as we look at this together this morning. So if you've got your Bibles there, please either open them up to Revelation 20 or you know your phones or your iPads or whatever you've got there to, to read the Scriptures together. And we're looking at chapter 20, verses 11 through to 15 to start with. Okay, We're going to jump around a little bit in the Bible today because uh, being one of these topical kind of subjects, the Bible speaks a lot about hell but in different places. So we're going to uh, sort of be uh, following through in different uh, places in the Bible, but I'll have a lot of those, uh, those references up on the, uh, the, uh, the wall behind me. Verses, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11, 15. Uh, picture we've got here is a picture of God's throne. Okay, It says that, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. We see this one, that the, the Jesus Christ, this is a picture of, of Jesus Christ seated on this throne there in heaven. And uh, he is ex- he's bringing about his judgment upon all mankind. And every single person is going to come and stand before the throne of God and be judged on according to what the Bible says here, their works. Now, I'm going to explain that in a little bit, but, but, but please don't think about this as you know, good deeds and bad deeds and whether or not God weighs those up as to, as to whether or not we get into heaven or not, because that's not what it's really speaking about. Okay? But it says, speaking about the fact that we are going to be judged. And, uh, and it's, we're talking about people's eternal destinies here. So we, the, the first thing we see in this passage is that we, were all, we all are going to be judged by God. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 tells us that it is appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. And Jesus is the judge. And we see that in Romans chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 and verse 16 where it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus himself will be the judge. And what we see in this passage in here in in Revelation chapter 20 is that God is keeping a record of every single aspect of our lives. God is keeping a record of every single aspect. And that is symbolized by the books there in verse 12 where it says the books were opened. It is a record, if you like. That's what it's speaking about. A record that God has of each and every person and their whole entire life. And what we need to understand is that God himself, being the creator, being the one who made us, knows everything about us. He is the all-knowing God, the Bible tells us. And he knows everything about each and every one of our lives. In fact, he is the one who searches deep down into the very hearts of our very being. Those secret things that we can keep hidden away in ourselves and we can keep hidden from those around about us, we cannot keep hidden from God. The motivations and the attitudes and the thoughts that we have deep down in our hearts which we think we can keep hidden from everybody else, God knows. He judges our actions and our attitudes, our thoughts and our deeds. And it says here in verses 12 to 13 that we as people will be stand before this judgment seat and be judged according to the things we have done. As I said, does that mean that God is going to uh, you know, pull out the scales, if you like, and he's going to put all of your good deeds on one side and all of your bad deeds on the other? And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're fine. You'll get into the gates of heaven. And if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then off you go to hell. No, that's not what we're talking about here. You can say, well, well what does it mean then? What does it mean that there will be a, uh, judged according to our works? You might recall that uh, in uh, James, a book that we uh, studied together a little while ago, that James spoke about the fact that, that faith without works is a dead faith. Do you remember that? And what he's saying is that, you know, really our, our works are an overflow or an evidence of our belief. And so what we're seeing here is that, that our works, if you like, actually are the evidence of really what we truly believe in our hearts. And our deeds, our actions, if you like, flow out of that. And for the person of faith, the person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, then, uh, then the, 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 resultant, uh, the resulting works of that will be, in fact, a life lived according to what God, or how God would have us live. For those who reject God, who refuse to uh, acknowledge him as the one who is sovereign over all, who is the authority, the one who uh, has laid out uh, you know, the, the way in which a, a life is meant to be lived according to his design as creator, those who reject him and reject his authority and reject his word, then their lives show a demonstration of that as well. And so when it says we're judged according to our deeds, our deeds, in fact, really are, really correspond, if you like, to what we truly believe in our minds and in our hearts. Now, sadly, today, many people think 
that you know, if, if, they, if they even believe that there is a God, that they believe that you know, one day, you know, providing they're a good person and their good outweighs their bad, then they'll be fine, that God is going to give them a pat on the head or a pat on the back and welcome them into heaven. But that is not the case. The Bible clearly states that the only way a person is accepted by God is through faith in Jesus Christ and through his substitutionary death and resurrection. Look at what Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12 says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I don't know how you can make it any clearer than that, do you? That there is salvation in no one else. That there is no other name, no other person under heaven who is able to save us apart from Jesus Christ. And so a person's eternal destiny depends upon only one thing. And that is what a person's response is to Jesus and to who he is in his person, but also to what he has done in his death and resurrection, what he's accomplished for us, for God. So we will all be judged, and the, and the basis of that judgment will be what we have, what has been our choice towards Jesus. This passage says that uh, you know the dead were, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. The sea gave up the dead, death and Hades gave up their dead, and everyone was judged, each and every, every, every one of them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We're speaking about the second death here. We're talking about there will be, all of us will, will die. We'll, all of us will, will experience a physical death at a point in time. We don't know when that time will be for each and every one of us. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be next year, it could be 10, 15, 20 years from now. We don't know, only God knows. In fact, the Bible tells us that God knows our, our end from our beginning. He knows all of our days. And each and every one of us, as I said a couple of weeks ago, we're on a tra- tra- trajectory towards death. But that is the first death, the physical death. But what the, the Bible is speaking about here is the second death is the eter- our final eternal destiny. And that death is complete and utter separation from God who himself is the giver of life. It says this is the second death being thrown into this lake of fire. So we see that we will all be judged by God and that hell itself is reserved for those whose deeds demonstrate their rejection of God and his salvation through Jesus Christ. As I said, those who have believed in Jesus and have trusted for him as as the, the one who has secured their salvation, the one who has paid their punishment for their sins on the cross, those who have put their faith in him, they are the ones whose names are written in the book of life, which is spoken about here in verse 15. And anyone whose name was found written in the book of life, if they, sorry, if the person... 
If, they, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, I should say, it was that person who was thrown into the lake of fire. The person whose name was written in the book of life will go to eternity with God. Of course, this lake of fire is just another name for hell. And it will be here, in this place, along with Satan, along with the Antichrist, along with the false prophet, they will experience God's eternal sentence for their sin. They will endure everlasting punishment. Think about that for a moment. What do you think that means? Everlasting punishment. What does it mean to go to hell? The Bible employs a number of metaphors when it comes to speaking about hell. But what they convey is this, that hell is a place, a real place, of suffering and of torment, of despair and of hopelessness, and of being removed forever from the presence of God. In fact, it's interesting that in the Gospels it is Jesus himself who spoke the most about hell. In fact, in the, in the Bible, Jesus is the one who speaks the most about hell than any other person in the whole of the Scriptures. So if Jesus spoke about hell that much, then obviously he wanted us to understand what it was about and he wanted us to understand it so that we might be rescued from it through faith in him. Jesus speaks first and foremost of hell as a place of fire. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, he said this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And again in Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Jesus says that hell indeed will be a place of fire. We've seen just recently in events in London where people were trapped inside a burning building and we've seen the images of horror from that place, the, 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 the images of horror that confronted those who, who looked on as people perished in that blaze. Dozens of people. I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a worse kind of death than to be burned alive. But we are told that hell will be a place of fire where people will suffer incredibly and it will never end. Jesus spoke of hell as a place of fire. He also spoke of hell as a place of darkness. Matthew eight eleven to 12 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again in Matthew 22, he says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of darkness. Now I don't know how a place of fire and a place of darkness go together. Because obviously fire creates light, doesn't it? I don't know how those two things go together, but this is the descriptions we're given by Jesus. And that's what we've got to try to, uh, to get our heads around. And one of the things which, uh, which I see this darkness as being, though, is not just a, uh, uh, the, the, when it comes to darkness, darkness, darkness is not just an absence of light, but, it, but the, the darkness that is being spoken of here is, is a pervading darkness, a spiritual darkness, a darkness, I believe, that, that kind of just uh, closes in like a, a deep depression. I know people who uh, have, have struggled with, uh, with, 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 with depression in their lives and particularly with, with a, 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 a kind of mental illness called, called um, um, bipolar. And I know in those particular points in time in their lives where, where that actually really grabs them and takes hold of them, they, they just are overwhelmed by this, this darkness. It kind of envelops them and it just takes them to this really horrible and, and, uh, and, and depressing and distressing place in their lives. And for me, that's, I think that's a bit of a, 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 a look into the kind of darkness that we're speaking about here in hell. This pervading darkness that just closes in. Of course, these two Bible verses we've got up there also, you know, speak about the fact that hell will also be a place of absolute despair. It speaks about that it will be a place of weeping and of gnashing of teeth, a, a, a distressing kind of a place. So we've got it as a place of fire, a place of darkness. But what the Bible ultimately says is that hell is a place which is removed from the presence of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Like when we consider that God himself is the source of light, of goodness, of joy, of love, of peace, of rest, of hopefulness, of truth. And to be removed from him is to be removed completely from all these things. And I think when it comes to hell, here is, is the absolute, I guess, the, the ultimate experience of hell. It will be you know, being removed from, from, every, from everything to do with God and, and all of the blessings and all of the goodness and all of the kindness and all of the, 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 the joy and, and those sorts of things which come only from God. We will be removed from those completely. And what we'll be left with is this incredible suffering. This darkness, as I said before, but a, a fear, a constant fear and sadness and restlessness and distress and despair away from the presence of God. And 
and it will be forever. Jesus himself said that hell is forever. Matthew 25, verse 46. Jesus says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are some which would say, or which would deny this eternal punishment. We'll come to that in a minute. But Jesus himself here says, There is only one of two paths, there is only one of two ways that we will go. We will either go away to eternal punishment when we are judged or to eternal life. Now if we say that there is eternal life, then we've actually got to say also that there is eternal punishment. Don't you agree? Isn't that what Jesus' words say there in Matthew 25? Of course, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, although speaking about of, of the, the, the intermediate state, if you like, that state between you know, when we physically die and when we judge before this, this great white throne that we speak about here in Revelation 20, we, it, what it says is it clearly points out that, uh, that eternal destinies are fixed once we die. You might recall in, in Luke 16 how uh, you know, we're told a rich man died and Lazarus died, a poor man. And uh, you know, the, the rich man says to, uh, you know, to uh, God, is, who, this rich man is in this place of torment and suffering. And he says to, uh, to God, you know, send Lazarus, who's in the, the bosom of Abraham, this place called paradise. Send Abraham to uh, you know, dip his finger in some water and come and at least give me some kind of uh, relief from this pain and, and torment. And then he says, and if you won't do that, Lord, then at least send him to, uh, you know, to my relatives that are still alive, that he might actually tell them what to expect when they die and not to come to this place. And God says, well, that's impossible. And he even says, you know, if, if they didn't, uh, if they didn't uh, believe the prophets and the, you know, and, and the law of Moses that came before, uh, before uh, you know, the, uh, this person dying, then they'll not even believe a man who rises from the dead. And of course, you know, Jesus is speaking about his own resurrection from the dead, that even people who were aware of that and who knew that that took place would not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But that parable very much speaks about that once we die, our eternal destinies are fixed. There is no going back. There is no changing them. There is no getting a second chance once our life on this earth is over. Now I know that there's a question going on in some of your minds this morning. And the question is this, how then can a loving God send people to such a terrible place as hell? If God is indeed the all-loving God, the all-merciful God, the all-compassionate God, then surely... Being this loving and gracious and merciful God, he would want to uh, you know, prevent people from going and experiencing such pain and torment. I mean, when we really consider the realities of hell, when we really come to grips with what hell is going to be like, we know that it is the cruelest of places. And for people to endure that kind of suffering from an eternity really grates on us when we think of the loving God whom we serve and whom we love. 
In fact, over the years, it's caused many Christians to try to soften this harsh teaching about hell. Christians have come up with a couple of, of, of options. The first is what's called annihilationism. In other words, Christians have, 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 have believed that, that people may suffer in hell for a short time, but ultimately will be completely destroyed and there'll be just be nothing. Like you experienced before you, uh, you know, before you uh, were born into this world, you know, that, that existence before then, there was, there was nothing. That's what they, that's what they say. But that, as we saw, contradicts the very teaching of Jesus Christ who says that people will go away to eternal punishment. And then there is this uh, other um, idea, if you like, or this other belief called universalism. And that is that ultimately everybody will be saved, that ultimately everyone will go to heaven. And there's lots of different kind of camps, if you like, in this universalist kind of position. But ultimately what they believe is that that finally everyone will go to heaven, that some people might suffer in hell for a time, but they will suffer there until they see the error of their ways and then they will be brought into heaven after that. I'm sorry, folks, but the Bible just does not say that. The Bible just does not give any kind of credence to those kinds of thinkings and beliefs. No matter how hard the people in those camps try to, you know, manipulate and and uh, and, and uh, you know, sort of get the, the the scriptures to sort of say what they believe, they've got to do some incredibly um, um, creative kinds of hermeneutics, if you like, or studies of the Bible in order to get it to say what they believe. When Jesus plainly says that some will go away to eternal punishment and some will go to eternal life. Of course, then you'll get non-believers who will make hell to be a more appealing place. You know, all my mates will be there and we'll just have a great big party there in hell. They try to downplay it. They soften it down to, to being a place where, well, you know, I'm not going to be on my own there. Or, of course, they reject it outright. How do we reconcile a loving God who allows people and even sends people to such an awful place as hell. Well, can I say this morning that this is going to be way too involved a topic just to talk about just in a few minutes that we've got this morning. But I just want to say this. I want to point out this. That we need to remember that God is indeed a loving God, but that he is also a God who is righteous, a God who is just, and a God who is holy. In fact, you cannot divorce one of God's attributes from another. God is all of these attributes all to collectively together. You cannot isolate one from another and say that, you know, because God is loving, then his love is greater than this particular characteristic, his holiness or his righteousness or his judgment. You cannot do that because that is not who God is. God is perfect in all of these characteristics. God cannot be anything but what his character is like. God is always holy. 
Psalm 5 verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. God is always holy. God is always righteous. God must always uphold what is right and good and punish that which is not. God must always be, um, must always be just. God must pass judgment and carry out the sentence of his judgment and that means condemning sinners to hell and to an eternal separation from him. And yes, God is always loving, meaning that he gives people free will to either choose to love him or choose to reject him. And he provides the means by which sin can be dealt with, where our sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And therefore we can be brought into his presence and spend that eternity with him. This whole aspect of God's love is an interesting one because you know, when we speak about love, we often think of just the, the, uh, you know, the positive lovey-dovey kind of feelings about love, you know, the, the, the warm, fuzzy kind of feelings about love. But a real love gets angry at things that are wrong, that are unrighteous. Don't, doesn't love do that? If my family were put in danger in any kind of way, shape or form, and there was harm being caused to them, I would get angry at that cause because of my love for my family. And if a fallen sinner like me can see what is wrong with that, can see what is wrong with harm being caused to those whom I love, then don't you think a God who is perfect in love and perfect in righteousness and, and, and all other ways would see that in even greater, in an even greater scale? I'm thankful that God is a loving God, but I'm also thankful that God is a righteous God. And that God is going to indeed one day punish those who have flaunted, you know, his, his free will in their lives and been able to actually be, um, um, tools, if you like, of the devil in order to bring about destruction and, and, and all kinds of distress and pain to, to other people in our world today. I thank God that God is a loving God, that he loves us enough to want to punish those who do wrong. Because there are those today who will just re- outrightly reject God and his ways today and will continue to live their lives you know, apart from God and will continue to bring about destruction and, uh, and hurt and pain in people's lives. I'm glad that one day those people will have to stand before God and answer for their crimes. But I'm also thankful that God is a loving God because I am a person just like them. There is no difference between me and those kind of people. And there is no difference between you and those kind of people apart from the fact that God in his grace and his mercy has reached down into our lives, helped us to see the truth of the gospel and given us the faith to respond to Jesus Christ and the salvation that he secured for us on the cross. Amen.
God's desire is that none should perish. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is God's desire. God wants people to see their need for Jesus Christ as their saviour and to respond in faith, but he knows that there will be people who will not do that. He's provided the means where our sins have been forgiven, have been paid for through Jesus Christ. He's defeated evil and sin and death. He offers people eternal life, but ultimately it is our choice. John three sixteen to 18 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, folks, I don't know how the Bible can make it any clearer than that. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Saviour are no longer condemned. But those who reject Jesus are condemned already. As we've seen, Jesus is God's only means of salvation. And there is a response that is needed from each and every one of us to what God has done through Jesus Christ. And that is, firstly, we have to admit our sin. We have to admit that we are indeed sinners who have gone away from God's perfect plan for us. That we are people who have rejected God and his authority over our lives. And that we've got to admit that we are a people who stand already under the judgment of God. And that judgment was upon us from the very moment that we were entered into this world. From the very moment that we were born, we were, we were sinners already condemned. And we need to admit that because we are condemned, we stand under God's righteous judgment. Secondly, we need to believe. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the only one who is able to secure our salvation through his death and resurrection. We need to believe that Jesus was indeed the very Son of God who came into this world, who lived a perfect life, who died a cruel and horrible death, but who was raised from the dead in victory over Satan, sin and death, and who now reigns in glory, and who, if those who put their faith and trust in him as their Saviour, who believe in him, and who believe in what he accomplished on the cross, they are the ones who, be, who are saved. And finally, we have to commit. We need to commit ourselves to to him and to loving him and following his ways. It's as simple as that, Lord, folks. It's A, B, C. Admit, believe, commit. One of the things I want to leave you with this morning is this. As we've spoken about hell this morning, I want us to remember that, folks, we're not just dealing about right doctrine. We're not just dealing about having a right belief and a right understanding about the, the word of God. But what we, are, what we are talking about this morning is people's eternal destinies. 
yours and mine and every other person that is out there in that world today, we are talking about our and their eternal destinies. There are people around us who are currently destined for the horrors of hell. And we ourselves have been given the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. To not only live it out, but to go and proclaim it. Some of you might be familiar with a guy called Penn Gillette. He's part of a comedy duo called Penn and Teller. He's not a Christian himself. But he says this. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell and you think it is not really worth telling them because it's socially awkward, then how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them that there is good news? the good news of Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure that every person in this room today would say that we wouldn't hate those around about us, that we wouldn't hate the people in our communities, in our neighbourhoods. But the reality is, folks, is if we do not tell them, then really that's what it boils down to. We do not love them enough to want to tell them the good news. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your love. The world will know you are my disciples by your love. Your love for me, your love for one another and your love for my creatures, my creation. That's the challenge that comes this morning, folks. Not just about the fact that hell is a real place, a place where people will go to for eternity to suffer, but that God in his love has made a way possible for us to be with him forever and ever and ever. To experience the blessing of knowing his presence and his goodness as part of our lives, both now and into eternity. God has acted in grace towards you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, God has acted in grace towards you. God has been merciful towards you as he has been to me. God has shown you great love. And now he calls us to go out and show that same love, that same grace and that same mercy and that same compassion to a world of people that are going to hell. That should break our hearts because it breaks God's heart. Let's pray. Father God, we um, pray that you might just impress upon our hearts.
the very realities of hell. That you might impress upon our hearts that this is indeed, when we talk about this subject, it's not just talking about right belief, but we are talking about people's lives, people's eternal lives. And we want to thank you that you have pursued us in your grace in order to bring us into your family, in order to bless us. But you've also brought us into your family in order that we might show to our world what it is to live in relationship with you and the the fullness of life that that means to have life with you. And to try and welcome as many other people into the kingdom as we can by proclaiming the message of the gospel. Lord, you are the pursuing God, the God who has pursued us, and you want to use us to pursue the people in our world today, to pursue them with love and with grace and mercy and the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. Help us to act with boldness. Help us to act with faith. And most of all, Lord, help us to act with love. Amen.